Hello all, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whenever you're listening to this podcast and welcome to our season finale. We are on the last episode of season one. I'm so excited to be here with you and don't mind me if I'm a little bit sleepy today because um, I'm trying to give up caffeine and uh, I'm on decaf coffee. (laughs) which is a trip on its own. Um, I don't know if it was the best idea to start this uh, caffeine weaning off uh, as quickly as I am weaning off, but um, I don't know. I'm just determined to do it. So I'm on decaf coffee, so I apologize if I'm not my usual uh, hyper self uh, today, but I'm told that once the caffeine addiction passes, you come back to your normal self. So wish me luck with this um, attempt. It's my first attempt to get rid of caffeine. I've been drinking coffee since I was like 12 or 14 years old. Uh, As in European, you know, coffee is our staple breakfast food. (laughs) And so that's a little bit um, of a wild attempt, according to my family. Uh, So welcome, welcome uh, to all of you who are new. I would like to say welcome. My name is Dr. Carla Ionescu, and I am the speaker, uh, author, director, whatever you want to call it, of the great of the Goddess Project podcast. Um, And this season, the last 20 episodes are my first time ever doing a podcast I should also say, and some of you know, who've been with me since the beginning, that the podcasts are unedited. And so I'm just here talking to you as we would, let's say, over a coffee or in an informal meeting of some kind. Yes. Uh, And so I hope that you enjoy this style and I hope that you enjoy um, this podcast. My goal for this podcast, actually, was it, it started off as a place where I can talk about things that students and I would start talking about in class, but then we just wouldn't have enough time to go through some of that material. And so I always felt like there was things that I was either repeating a lot or that I wanted people to know that I wanted to talk about, that I wanted to explore and reveal. And there are still so many things. And so season two is going to be, I think, even more of a blast than season one was. I have a whole list and uh, I'm going to take some time off because I want to do a couple other things. Um, But I will hold like a Twitter vote and an Instagram vote to see sort of what do you guys want to hear as topics? Because I have a huge list, a huge list. And so I'm very excited for season two. Um, But it really started as just a place for me to talk about things that I find interesting and that hopefully you find interesting and also actually a new take on the myths that have been passed down to us, particularly Greco-Roman myths, because that's my area of expertise. That's where I have my dissertation in, but numerous other myths that also fall into my research. So there's a lot of Egyptian lore in my research. There's a lot of Celtic lore in my research. Um, there's sometimes some indigenous connections, although not so much lore in my research. And so um, I would say, yes, mostly European and North African sort of mythology. 
um, that in, in influences my research because I do research on the goddess Artemis and I study her Greek representation, her Ephesian, uh, Middle Eastern representation, um, and her, for example, Italian, Sicilian, North African representation. So there's lots of places for Artemis to have where Artemis ruled. And um, those places, in order to study her lore, uh, of course, I have to do some of the background research to answer the question of how did she get here? You know, where did she come from in this geographical space? Um, and how did she inspire maybe perhaps other goddesses? Um, and so actually that leads me to what we're doing today. What we're doing today is I'm answering your questions. So I've held a poll on Instagram. I did it on um, Twitter as well and uh, asked you for questions. If you have any questions uh, that you would like me to answer and, uh, and you did, you had questions that you wanted me to answer. And so um, this episode, I'm going to uh, pull up the questions that you've sent me. Uh, some of them are about Artemis, some of them are about goddess worship, and some of them are a bit about my my work uh, and about how that influenced sort of women's perspectives and women's goals as, as a spirituality, women's spiritual goals, uh, but perhaps even life goals and, uh, well, living goals and connecting goals. I think all of those goals are important. And I think that using goddess lore and goddess history helps not just women, but everyone reconnect to their past, reconnect to a way of life that was maybe more fulfilling, uh, more mindful, and more empowering, definitely more empowering. So without further ado, let me share my screen. Um, again, if you're listening to this, you don't need to really. Um, <laughs> sorry, I always feel like, oh, there's a gap. Um, you don't need to. I'm just going to read out the questions. Um, but uh, I'm not actually sure why I like having a screen in the background, to be honest. I think it's just maybe also entertainment uh, as well. So... Um, actually, for those of you who joined us late or the podcast late, I wanted to actually show you a copy of my book, She Who Hunts. Speaking of my research, um, you can get this book at Amazon or anywhere else where you get your books. And if you want a book signed, you can get it on the Artemis Research Center website. I'll put that in the in the link below. And um, you can, I will sign it for you and you can have your book signed if you're into Artemis or know somebody who's into Artemis. I have a few left. I think I have maybe like 10 left. Um, and so if you want uh, a book signed, maybe for someone that you know is totally into Artemis, like for Christmas or for a gift or whatever coming up, um, please do so on the website. I'll put the link in there. Um, before I run out uh, of the ones that I have in my own hand. But other than that, if you just want a book and you're interested in Artemis, the Greek Artemis in this case, um, you can purchase this book anywhere online where you buy your books. So let's begin with questions. Yes, I'm very, very super excited. Uh, and I get this question a lot. This first question is, when were you first introduced to Artemis? I remember being in the Louvre and being in awe. And I think that this question is so powerful because many of us come to the goddess because we've had a moment with her. And 
I should say that I believe, it is my personal belief that the goddess is one as a creator, as an energy source, as a universe, like as a universal force, and that the goddesses or versions that we pray to or that we connect with are representations that are uniquely connected to us or feel familiar to us or represent something in us. So I think that the goddess's embodiment, whether it's Artemis, whether it's Athena, whether it's Isis, whether it's whoever, I think that those embodiments, especially in the modern world, are a personal choice, a personal connection. So for me, the connection to Artemis is is so deep and constant. When I was a kid, I grew up very Roman Catholic and I was very religious in the sense that I was very connected to the Virgin Mary. And I mean, everyday prayers, I would go to sit in church when I had a problem and speak to her. I would go and kneel in front of her, you know, in, in Catholic churches, they have a space where they have um, the statue of a Virgin Mary, and then you can light candles. I would light candles to her. I was very connected to her. And as a child, I thought it was something to do with her as mothering Jesus. And um, the, there was sort of this feminine mothering connection. And I guess to some degree that was true. But as I grew older, the connection remained. And then I went to university where I started doing one of my degrees in uh, religious studies. I have a few bachelor degrees because I couldn't really decide on what to do with my life. Uh, and here I am <laughs> with ancient history. Um, and one of my degrees is in religious studies and women's studies. And I really wanted to look at Christianity and Judaism um, to look at sort of where did the concept of the Virgin Mary come from? And, uh, you know, learn more about her, historically speaking. And ironically, and perhaps fortunately and unfortunately, or what my parents would call a bad blessing, um, in studying the history of Christianity and the history of Virgin Mary, my religious attachment, my religious belief was tested um, and that the history of Christianity is complicated. And the history of the Virgin Mary is even more so complicated. And if you're looking for historical facts to back up the story of the Virgin Mary, you're not going to find any. So that really shook me for many years. Um, I spent, you know, a good four years getting my religious studies degrees. I studied other religions. I studied more Christianity, et cetera. It really shook me, though. It shook my 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 belief. It shook me out of Christianity, although I couldn't find anywhere else where I fit in. You know, I studied other religions, and I couldn't find anywhere else where I fit in. And to make a long, long story short, because I spent many years as, a, as an undergraduate student, um, I came across the Virgin Mary, uh, sorry, I came across Artemis as I was processing the Virgin Mary. So as I was trying to trace her back, I kept bumping into Artemis, whether it was Artemis of Ephesus, whether it was Artemis in Minoan period, whether it was Artemis in Italy, um, I just kept bumping into her. And 
I don't know when the connection was made, but it was as I began studying Artemis that she started showing up for me everywhere. Yeah. Uh, so then I noticed her, of course, in every museum I went. I also noticed that people weren't talking about her um, in in the in popular culture the way that I was collecting research. So I began collecting research. And actually, my, my master's dissertation was on the connection between Artemis and the Virgin Mary. That was sort of a short paper that would later become a much, 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 much longer dissertation. And so when I did that uh, master degree, I realized the connection between Artemis and the Virgin Mary is undeniable. And so I went in to do my PhD for exactly this connection. And in fact, my PhD is sort of half about Artemis and half about the Virgin Mary. And in this new book that I'm writing, uh, uh, Artemis of Ephesus, I haven't decided yet if I just want to concentrate on the Artemis part of Ephesus or if I want, want to also add in that connection to Mary or do that separately. Anyways, that's sort of a consideration for a, a later date. But as I began to, to find Artemis, as I began to write her work, as I began to really realize how underrated she is as a goddess, she started showing up for me. She started showing up everywhere I went. If I traveled somewhere, I would bump into an unexpected statue. If I you know, just went anywhere, I would bump into a painting. Um, and so I started to feel a call to explore her worship and to share that. And so that that's really the beginning. And, and, and from then on, it really, uh, the, the bond between me and this goddess became succinct in the sense that it was both intellectual because I was, as a historian, I was researching her rituals, her festivals, et cetera. And I was really trying, and I continued to try to sort of open up and crack open all of the stories that people have not yet told about her. And then as an individual from a heart perspective, I don't know. I just became attached to her in a way that is unexplainable. Um, not as a mother to a child in the way that I was attached to the Virgin Mary, in which I always thought of her as, I always call her mother. But with Artemis, I feel like perhaps like a sister slash embodiment of the divine. I don't know how to explain it. Perhaps it's with age too, because as I grew older, you know, I'm a, I became a mother figure myself. And so that, you know, that, that that's another layer, but there is something empowering about Artemis for me. There is something like, it feels something like stepping into her shoes, stepping into her aura, her allowing me to use that power, that strength in order to continue the work that I do in order to continue being of service to her and and to to other women and people men and women who are interested in learning more about her and so that there is something there is an embodiment there that she allows for me and uh, i'm not sure that i'm putting that into words clearly but um there's space you know she gives me space there's an equality there um and i find that really powerful and perhaps that's something that i need right now in my at my age um, 
And so, yeah, I hope that kind of answers your question. Um, sorry if that was a really long way to answer your question. Um, sometimes I tend to go the long way around to answer anything. Next question. This question is um, a two-part question. What is my favorite place in Europe? Uh, and how does Artemis stand with men? <laughs> um, so let's start with Europe because that's an easy one. My favorite part, my favorite place in Europe is Greece. Uh, my favorite place in Greece is Crete. Although there are numerous places in Greece that I hope uh, to visit and to take people on tours. My goal is um, to start taking people on tours or to have as you know, some of you who have followed this podcast know that I'm working on building the Artemis Research Center, which right now is an online center, but in the long run, I would like it to be an actual real physical center. And so my goal is to have people come and stay at the center um, to run retreats, goddess retreats, Artemis retreats, to also do some courses there perhaps and, and some other sort of healing. And so to make the center be of service um, to others. Um, and uh, in honor of the goddess. And because Crete was such a goddess island for so, so long, I feel a call to bring that back. And I'm not the only one. There's numerous other, both academics and other goddess worshipers that run um, trips around uh, Crete and Greece and, and of course also honor the goddess in this way. So it's not just me on my own, but it is something that I've always wanted to do. And, um, it's something that I'm now beginning to work on, you know, like a real life goal as before it was sort of a dream. Now it's becoming a real life goal. So that's my favorite place in Europe. Um, and many places of Greece are really wonderful as well. Not so much the touristy places, although those are wonderful and I think definitely worth a visit. Uh, but there are other islands and spaces and, and museums and sacred sites that I think are not getting any sort of, you know, TV time or uh, exposure. And I would love to take place, uh, people to some of these places, small groups of people that are interested in the goddess, because I would really like it to be an archaeological slash historical slash spiritual interest. I don't want it to be touristy per se, um, because I, I I I imagine myself in the middle of let's say I just posted um that temple site for Leto, the the mother of Artemis and Apollo, who was a goddess in her own right, a very powerful goddess in her own right. And uh, up in the mountains of Crete, there was a large town and a large temple site to her. And um, people don't usually go there. And I would really love to um, take people there and also do like a little bit of a, just like a, you know, like how guides talk, a little bit of a lecture, a little bit of a talk uh, while we're walking around that space. Um, there are also caves in Greece and in Crete that I would love to take people, again, a small group of people where we can do a performance of the rituals that were performed there. I think that would be really fascinating. Um, and also I think it would be empowering to participate in a ritual of old. Um, and then there are places um, that are just interesting to visit that are not often visited um, and interesting to just sort of 
hang out for a while, take a break, feel the energy of the space. Um, and, and that's not only in Greece, that's in many places. Um, and so um, I think that it's and in May, for example, I'm going to Turkey for three weeks with a friend of mine who is running a uh, a wonderful trip. I'll post the deets on my social media. Uh, so I'm sort of the lecturer guide, but he will be planning and running the entire trip. And so we're doing a slow goddess trip in the sense that we're taking our time staying in a place and talking about it and just maybe taking a day to reflect and think about it and write and have a drink and, you know. Um, and so I really love this idea of slow touring um, instead of like constantly go, 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 go. Um I like the idea of just sitting in a space for a day or, or a time and, and enjoying that space. So, but one of my favorite places is Crete, uh, Crete in Greece. How does Artemis stand with men? That's a good question too. Artemis is not a fan of men. To put it shortly, Artemis is a goddess that is, I mean, we call her virginal, but by virginal, I think it's less about her sex or her sexual exploits, but more about the fact that she remains single, unmarried, and has her own autonomy because she has numerous nymphs. And I was talking to someone recently about the possibility that, um, you know, Artemis could be uh, a representation of women's passions. Um, or sort of like what we call, you know, uh, a gay god or a gay bay, you know, um, in the in the sense that we don't know what Artemis and her nymphs are up to uh, when they're frolicking in the forest. And uh, there'd be no reason why her and her nymphs would not engage in some type of love affair should they decide to. And this may also explain why Artemis is so aggressively jealous and possessive of her nymphs and followers. Um if her nymphs, and this is famous, uh, if her nymphs are either taken by men or seduced by men or fall in love with men, Artemis's punishment is swift, angry, violent, usually deadly. Um, and so there is a lot of aggression and possessiveness, even with Iphigenia, for example. Um, you know, Iphigenia is the daughter of Agamemnon, and um, Artemis demands that Agamemnon. Uh, sacrifice Iphigenia because she insult he insulted her, the goddess, uh, by killing one of her sacred deers. And um Agamemnon is about to sacrifice. That's a long story. We can probably go into that in another episode. But Agamem Agamemnon is about to sacrifice Iphigenia um on the altar. And at the last minute we're told that Artemis comes and saves her and replaces her with a stag. And then Iphigenia becomes a consort of sorts uh, to Artemis. She's actually a very important semi-goddess, demigod. It's unclear uh, because she becomes immortal, right? Um, but she, in some places, takes the place of Artemis um, and is worshipped on her own right as sort of a, a divinity, a semi-divinity. And um, I always think of that as sort of Artemis's almost love relationship with Iphigenia. There's a lot of overlap between Artemis and Iphigenia. There's a lot of depth to that relationship. Um, and so I like to call Iphigenia her consort, but there are other nymphs also of Artemis that have interesting, numerous nymphs actually, um, 
I am thinking of doing this thing uh, called Artemis Talks. I think I've talked about it in a previous episode. And now that you guys, now, now that you guys are saying, now that I'm saying that to you guys, um, I I would really like to do, perhaps I might do the nymphs of Artemis because there I can think of at least 10 off the top of my head that are named, that have their own stories and that have a relationship with Artemis uh, I mean, it looks like it's a friend relationship or certainly an honor relationship, uh, but uh, it's a very intense relationship. So actually, now that I think of it, I think I might do some of that. I might talk about her nymphs and those relationships with her nymphs. Uh, Artemis can be quite harsh. So if she's that way with men, with women, you can imagine how she is with men. Um, she is not a fan of men coming into her space without consent. She often kills them for that. Um, we know the story of Acteon when he accidentally spied on her and she uh, turned him into a stag and had his his own dogs tear him to pieces. Um, there are numerous men that Artemis slays or punishes or turns into bears or deer or whatever um, in order because they were sneaking up on her, because they were looking at her without her permission, because they seduced one of her nymphs. So I would say that Artemis's I would say that Artemis and Apollo, like in that way, that relationship is one of her best, best relationships. I say that in quotation marks. Um, she partners with her brother quite well. Um, they often are either saving or killing people together. So, so there's a partnership there. I would say with her father, she is quite uh, close and brave and abrupt and he he gives her whatever she wants so so i think with her father and her brother those are probably the two um relationships that are strong for her with men that being said there are a lot of men that build temples to artemis so artemis is not opposed to men worshiping her in fact there are many men who um, have a vision of her asking them to um, build a temple for her and so, um, and there are many instances in which her, the temples that are built to her are built by men. Now, I don't know if that is just patriarchal writing in the sense that men are writing these stories and they could only imagine men building temples. And so they're like, of course, a man was inspired to build a temple. Like, how could a woman build a temple? Mm, I don't know. Uh, there are stories that the Amazons, for example, did establish a temple or two or more um, to Artemis. And so so there are instances where women are building temples, but there are lots of stories of men having a vision or Artemis speaking to them and saying, you have to build me a temple. And then they go ahead and build a temple. In fact, the, the, the temple of Artemis in Ephesus, which was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, it was massive and extremely popular and extremely used for a long, long time, was, of course, inspired by Artemis um, through a man, through several, actually, builders and architects. And so, and so to be a worshiper of Artemis as a man is acceptable, as long as you stay within the boundaries um, that she sets out. So you don't want to be in the woods spying on her. Um, and you don't want to be trying to seduce any of her nymphs. You need to stop that behavior. <laughs> that will lead to your untimely death. But you may build temples to her. You may worship her. You may honor her. You may do all of these things for her. She doesn't have a problem for that. 
with that. And, and don't forget that the Spartans worship Artemis before a battle. And so she, I think she welcomes the, a part of her welcomes the bloodthirst of men. Artemis is a bloodthirsty goddess. Um, and, and by that, I mean, uh, I'm referring to the Spartans who whip themselves into a frenzy and their blood goes on the statue of the goddess. So I don't think she's anti-men in the sense of worshiping her, but I think her relationship is very re restrictive, uh, particularly with men. That is, stay within the boundaries of consent and stay within the boundaries of whatever your responsibility is. Um, with women, I feel like she may be a little bit warmer because she assists in childbirth, because she has so many consorts slash nymphs. Um, because she's, you know, the savior of women, but she also kills a lot of women. I mean, uh, she kills Niobe, uh, not Niobe, but she kills all of her daughters and sons. Um, she punishes women. Um, she turns them into trees again, or bears. Um, so she's, she, I mean, she's not, she's a tough goddess to commit to. She is not a goddess that is warm and cuddly and fuzzy you know uh perhaps maybe like a like demeter comes to mind or even Hera. i wouldn't call her warm but certainly she's more warmer or even aphrodite although aphrodite is a shady has a shady side as well but um artemis is a tough goddess her love is all embracing but in order to earn that love you gotta you gotta be strong you know, and you have to be in service to her. Yeah. So hopefully that answers your question. Let's move on to the next question. Uh, and I think this kind of actually, I've already answered a bit. Are Artemis's hunters allowed to have male friends, relationships with physical touch based on respect? So actually, I think that this question um, is very much answered. Uh, I, I think I've answered it. Um, are they allowed to have relationships? I would say in short, Actually, I would add that the nymphs that follow Artemis are not allowed to have relationships with men. No. Um, nor are they allowed to give birth to children or anything like that. So her own private followers, consorts, myths, what, nymphs, nymphs, whatever you want to call them, are not allowed to have relationships with men and are not men. However, human women, of course, are encouraged to have relationships with men, uh, get married, have children. Artemis is a um, is a goddess of protection of children, of protection of women in childbirth, of protection of women. Um, and like I said earlier, also is connected to men and in, 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 uh, allows men to be her priests to, <clears throat> excuse me, to uh, like in Ephesus, there were male priests to Artemis um, to build temples, that kind of stuff. So I think that's sort of a, a short answer. Um, so as humans, you're allowed to live lives however you see fit and have sexual experiences or whatever experiences you want to have. But her private consorts, her private nymphs, her private the, the, the 20, 30, let's say, nymphs that are with her always, um, no, they are not allowed to have any physical contact with men. Uh, do they have contact with each other? That's un unsupported, so we don't know. Uh she certainly never seems to be upset about that. Um, so they may be allowed to have, like I said, love affairs with each other or love affairs with Artemis. We're unclear. There's no data about that. Uh, but there's certainly never a moment where Artemis is angry at them for consorting with each other. So 
Uh, so that, that's kind of open. Uh, but they're not allowed to have relationships, neither with gods, other gods, nor with men. Um, um, and I wouldn't say she has male friends. Um, Artemis has no male friends, I would say. Male worshipers, but not male friends. Yeah, other than her brother. But, you know, that's a different story. Next. What was the original god that Artemis replaced when the Pantheon was created? And who replaced her in the succeeding religion of Christianity? And finally, who is our modern day Artemis in our modern spiritual cultural context? This is a fantastic question, by the way. And it is one that is slightly complicated. Um, okay, let's take the first part. What was the original God that Artemis replaced when the Pantheon was created? I would say Artemis did not replace anyone when the Pantheon was created, she was already in place. However, I would say that Artemis was already in the area of what we call modern Greece or the Mediterranean, was already a goddess worshipped as the mistress of animals before the Greek civilization or Greek senate or Greek pantheon um, or Greek anything was built or arrived in this area. And so Artemis is a archaic goddess. Um, some scholars believe that, and that includes myself, that she was already in this area, worshipped as a mistress of God, a mistress of animals, or just as a mistress um, for thousands of years, perhaps two to three to 5,000 years before the Greeks established um, their pantheon. Yeah. Oh, sorry. You said pantheon. That's right. I'm sorry. Uh, and so what happens is um, when the Greeks, and I'm saying that in quotation marks, arrive in this area, and, uh, you know, I'm generalizing, um, they already find her there. And because she has such a long tradition, and this is for many of the goddesses in the pantheon, it is the same for Hera, it is the same for Demeter, it is the same for Aphrodite, it is the same for all of them. The goddesses were already there. Same for Hecate. They were already there and they were worshipped in different facets or different embodiments, let's say, or sometimes one embodiment that then the Greeks split into others. So, for example, often people say that Artemis and Hecate overlap. Yes. And so does Selene. Yes. Um, and others. And so like Britomartis and Eletheia. Um, other goddesses that later became minor goddesses, but that were strong goddesses within the region. And so what the Greeks did when they arrived is they kind of looked around and they picked whatever goddesses they thought were the most powerful or the most popular, and they placed those in their pantheon. Um, and Artemis survived, and Athena survived, and Hera survived, and so that's really great. But they were already there. And they were there for thousands of years. They were there before writing. Um, and uh, we know that through a lot of what we found, especially the female figurines, some of the art, um, and some of the other artifacts that we found, uh, particularly in the area of Greece and, and, like I said, Crete before, which is part of Greece today. Um, and so we know that the Minoans and the Mycenaeans worshipped uh, goddesses, particularly this goddess of 
animals. And we know that it, she was all over An like Anatolia, the Middle East. So this goddess that Artemis later sort of almost kind of sucks up into a vacuum and becomes the singular divinity um, was a goddess that was widespread. Um, and sometimes she's, she was referred to as the goddess of the mountains or the god. Anytime that you have a goddess of the wilderness or a goddess of um, forests or animals or whatever, you can make, you can be sure that eventually she became Artemis. Um, and so in a way, Artemis, like, the, I, and I think that's why for me, whenever I see her in this representation of um, just the huntress with the dog and the archery uh, symbolism, uh, whatever, the, the bow and arrows, I find that to be so limiting, so, so limiting because that, and I call that the Greek Artemis because that really is the Greek, um, how do you call it? Like a funneling, a, a singularing. I know that's not a word, but you know it, it, they create the singular divinity out of this very complicated divinity, widespread, uh, multi-layered divinity, and so that's that's kind of what happens, um, and so that's why I call her the Greek Artemis, while the Ephesian Artemis is another um, fantastic uh, incarnation of this divinity, and then in Italy as well, in Sicily and Syracuse and other areas. She was a bit of the Greek Artemis. And then as she became Diana, she changed a bit again and embodied some other sort of um, pre-Roman goddesses. So there's a lot of complexities to Artemis. And to be fair, there's a lot of complexities to all the goddesses. It's just I specialize in this one. But I would argue that if you, and and I'm, numerous people argue this, that if you go back with Athena, if you go back with Aphrodite, if you go back with all of these goddesses, you will find a similar complexity for them as well. Um, and then they were kind of shaped into the singular divinity. I think the worst one is probably Hera. I think Hera has the worst um, uh, simpl simplified version of her. She becomes a nagging wife. Um, and she Hera is really a goddess, a parthenogenetic goddess that is a goddess that can birth without the help of men. In fact, she famously births Hephaestus without Zeus, without any male um, contribution. And so I've been thinking about Hera lately uh, in some ways because my friend Paul is um, has mentioned her and we've talked about her, but also because I'm reading um, Marguerite Rigoglioso's book again on the divine um, birth, goddesses and divine birth. And she, she does a whole thing on Hera and how Hera actually gives birth to several children without the help of any male, without the contribution of any male. And so, and and how Hera was, again, a pre-Greek goddess that was capable of parthenogenesis, which means that women can birth without the without sperm, without the male contribution. And this is an ancient, ancient idea, theory, belief that uh, actually leads to the virgin birth the, of Mary. The fact that Mary is impregnated by a God and has a son is as old as time in the ancient world. This is not a new story. This is uh, a very old story. In fact, most priestesses were believed to have to consort with gods and become pregnant. Um, and then that traces back to this idea that at some point, uh, because women in their bodies carry a complete 
female egg kind of thing. They could, in theory, uh, reproduce asexually, in theory, again, don't quote me on the science, but there is science behind this. They could reproduce asexually under the right circumstances. Um, the idea is that there's a possibility that women could reproduce other women um, without uh, a male contribution. Anyways, and this uh, this idea is as old as time. And interestingly, Hera does that, particularly with Hephaestus. You know, she also has Typhon um, and others, but Hephaestus is interesting because Hephaestus becomes an Olympian. And so um, she has Hephaestus just out of spite because Zeus is having all these children with all these women. And so she's like, oh, well, screw you. I'm going to have my own child. And so she has a son um, and uh, and that's Hephaestus. And her and Hephaestus have a problematic relationship. And then the gods kind of make him um, crippled um, or his legs are not right. Uh, and I think that's a very Greek way of saying that without a male counterpart, the child is not perfect. Um, I don't actually think that originally there's anything wrong with Hephaestus. Um, I think that in the earliest of myths, um, he was a smith, a, a sort of a blacksmith god, a god that makes weaponry. And I think that he was always fine. He's super powerful. Uh, but I think over time in Greek thought, he was given sort of a, an imperfection to kind of make up for um, for not having been birthed with male help, right? Uh, who replaced her in succeeding religion, Christianity? I think you know the answer to that is the Virgin Mary because that's the only female representative in uh, Christianity that is allowed to be worshiped. I mean, we do have Mary Magdalene, who is a powerful force, although she's always been, I hate the fact that she's been made into a prostitute. She was never a prostitute, not ever. Um, but, but she's not, she's not someone that you worship in, in Christianity um, and, or even revere. I know Christians sometimes are like, we don't worship the Virgin Mary. We revere her, but either way, the only person you're allowed to pray to um, in Christianity is uh, Mary and Jesus. And so the only, all of these goddesses, imagine that all of these goddesses, okay. Were either made into evil pagan divinities. So Hera became nagging. Aphrodite became a jealous, shady uh, goddess. Um, Athena made it okay. I think she's, she maintained that respect. And I think that's a very warrior male thing to do. Um, Artemis became totally ignored. Um Demeter is a mother figure, so she gets absorbed by uh, the Virgin Mary. Um, Persephone, I don't know, I would say also ignored. She gets she gets sort of the story, oh, she's taken by Hades and becomes the wife of, of the queen of the underworld. Um, who else is on that pantheon that I'm missing? I think those are all the women on the pantheon or the goddesses on the pantheon. And so the Virgin Mary embodies many of the concepts so for example the idea of virginity which in it's again it's a mis misrepresentation of uh greek virginity but anyway the idea of virginity the idea that 
a faithful woman to a divine being, to a God, can be impregnated by them. That's an old idea that, like I said, even predates the Greeks, that the priestesses were consorting with gods and creating heroes uh, and sacred children. So that's an idea that Mary also embodies. Um, you know, the, the protection mothering, the, the protective mother, which is very much Demeter and Persephone, um, you know, um, Mary embodies that. And other rituals, um, the use of honey, which is an old ancient uh, tool in ritual, uh, becomes sort of Mary's milk and, you know, the, the gift of milk and honey becomes Mary's um, repertoire. Um, her protection of the world, her protection of women, her protection of children. Again, all of that is um, embodied in Mary because she's the only one, you know, who, who else is going to embody all of the ways in which people have worshipped goddesses. Imagine that humans had worshipped goddesses for a hundred thousand years, you know, whether it was goddess of the earth or goddesses in a pantheon. And then all of a sudden, in the last 2,000 years, you have either no goddess in the West or Western Europe and Eastern Europe, or you have the one left virgin mother. So all of these humans that had loved the goddess, worshipped the goddess for thousands of years, have only one entity to really worship. And so, of course, that the Virgin Mary gets so much reverence and often people argue more reverence than Jesus because there is something natural to humans in connecting to a goddess. There is something natural to feeling that the divine is feminine. And perhaps it's because women are magical, right? Giving life is still magical. Um, the very first source of any warmth and kindness is in your mother's womb. That is a lasting connection. No matter how much patriarchy tries to beat down women and men, you cannot. There's something instinctual in us uh, of a connection to our mothers, good and bad mothers, because some of us have bad mothers and we're still like carrying that mother wound, you know? Uh, and some of us have fantastic mothers and we're very blessed with that. And so, the mother connection is undeniable and therefore the goddess connection is undeniable and the giving life and the procreation and all of those things. And so all of these aspects have been put into this one entity, which is the Virgin Mary um, in Christianity. Um, I would say in Judaism, there really isn't very much of that at all as a representation. There's there's female heroes and there's a couple of prophetesses that are gaining attention or have gained attention. In Islam, I would say similarly, there's no real female divinity, although again, there are heroes or heroines or, or women of influence. Um, so within Christianity, in a way, I'd say that we as a, as a person who was raised Christian was a bit lucky to have this one, at least one female divinity left. Um, now, as an adult, of course, I can choose my own spirituality and I can dig back and, and find my connection to that divine. But as a child, you know, I was glad to have at least at least one connection that was allowed or permitted. And the last part of your question, and finally, who is our modern day Artemis and our modern spiritual cultural context? Ooh, ooh, that's a tough one. Um, I would say our modern day Artemis is Artemis. Um, I have been humbled 
godly response to my book, to my love for Artemis, to my travels in her honor. And I hope to continue to, there's a lot of temples that have not been explored of hers. And I would really love to continue doing that. And to uh, the questions of, and the interest in her worship and in her in her divine powers, you know, uh, men and women have come and commented and contacted me and, and bought the book and read the book. And I really enjoy speaking to all of you um, and your interest in Artemis. So I would actually say that the modern popular culture is Artemis. I think that for a long time, the goddesses that sort of were most popularly or most famous, let's say in Hollywood, are, are, are Athena, Medusa, Isis. Hmm. Huh, maybe that's about it. Hecate, maybe yes, Hecate. Um, and so I so I think for a long time we had those sort of limited divinities. I mean. They're fine, but, you know, we had sort of a handful. I think people have always kind of, but imagine this, when I began working on my thesis, my dissertation, and I would talk to people about Artemis, they'd be like, what you're working on? And I'd be like, Artemis. They'd be like, who? Um, so imagine a time when people didn't really even know who she was. Uh, often they knew her by Diana. And I think that's because of Princess Diana, to be honest, uh, where people would Google Princess Diana and something about Diana Artemis would come up. Uh, but people did not know Artemis as widely as they do now. And so now when I say Artemis, people are like, oh, that's so cool. Yes, I'm totally interested in that goddess. Um, and so I think that she's gained popularity and uh, and hopefully will continue to gain more and more popularity. Um, I mean, I would love to see, uh, like I would love to do a film on her or um, – yeah, no, a film, a film with actors, a film with real, real mythology, with real traditions. Oh, my God, I have so many ideas. And that's like, where are you? Contact me, please. Um, you know, a whole series we can do. The problem I have with most films and series when they deal with Greek matter is they don't actually consult the experts. And so what we have is a continued repetition of the same uh, one dimensional divinities, where you could literally do five seasons on just Artemis's life and divine, divine life, you know, and her worshipers and all this. You, you could literally just on her alone, you could do five seasons on it. Um, I could only imagine the other goddesses, but it's important to connect, to contact the scholars <laughs> because I think the scholars have the juicy meat on the goddess you know they have the tea um and you can't just find it by you know looking up wikipedia or looking up repeated sites or looking up sort of uh old mytholog mythologists i think old mythologists had their place um you know joseph campbell is great mircha iliade is great you know i think they have their place but these are or stephen fry again uh, but these are individuals that have con that have been contained by a certain elitist classicist 
framework. And I think we need to blow that up, really. Um, and if you're doing a film or if you're doing even a documentary, but if you're doing a film on a goddess, um, I think it's important to con to make sure that you meet up with or discuss um, this divinity with the experts in that field. So anyways, sorry to go on that little rant, but I, I do, I really feel called to tell her story um, to everyone and to tell it right, you know, and to tell it as best as the information that I have available to me is. Um, and that is a lot of information. And so, yeah, I guess that's a bit of a tangent that I'll go on and perhaps I'll make my own film of her. You know, I don't know. I certainly can try and make a documentary, although uh, I'm not a great director or casting agent or, you know, a, a streaming service that can do that. But um, so I do think that the popular version of her is her. Um, I really can't see another goddess or character that takes up, especially the mistress of the animals, the hunting, the ferocious aspect of her Um I'm not sure, but if you have any suggestions, please leave it in the comments. If there's anyone that comes to mind that you think in popular culture or in spiritual context is her, that would be really wonderful. Please feel free to, to leave it. Um, okay, a couple of more questions. Um, one that I found was really interesting that my friend, uh, Helena, is um, we were talking about... Uh, engaging the audience and how to engage the audience. And she thought, you know, I have some uh, question ideas that you can ask, but also questions that maybe you can answer. <laughs> um, and uh, one of her questions is, how has listening to the Goddess Project uh, podcast provide you with insight into your own life and society? Uh, and then what's your favorite podcast and story so far? And uh, so I'm not listening. Although sometimes I, I don't know if this is, if everyone does this who has a podcast, but sometimes when I'm driving, I will listen to my own podcast. Um, and that is mostly because I just like the stories <laughs> so much. Uh, and also to kind of check what it sounds like, because sometimes I don't listen to it at all. I just, in fact, I don't listen to it before I post it, to be honest. Um, and every now and then I'll be like, I should probably listen to a couple episodes just to make sure that at least the sound is right. But I also like some of the stories and then I remember what I want to write about um, or what I want to do next, you know, by listening to myself talk. Uh, and so um, I think the insight in my own life that it has provided is how much I want to do this for a living, um, how much I want to continue doing the podcast, but how much I want to travel and share with everyone the locations of her temple, the worship of Artemis, and how much I want to build this Artemis center in which I hope to have artists come and paint or sculpt the goddess, uh, gardens in which people can just relax and enjoy themselves. So I would like to really build her a temple in a sense, that the center is a center for learning and healing, but that there will be a part of it that will be sacred and, uh, and that's, I think that's my personal call for her. And, um, I mean, one day I, when, when I find the place, when I find the piece of property, I will probably be starting a, some kind of a GoFundMe because, uh, you know, I'm, I'm working on a contract professor salary. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, hopefully some of you will share in that vision and, and help 
build the center and the temple, but I really feel like pulled. And so I'm going to Crete in December for a month. Um, and I'm going to do some work on the book and things like that, that are coming up next. But, um, I'm also going to look for the land and I hope to take some of you with me when we go look for, for the different pieces of land, uh, or the old properties. Cause I would really like to rebuild an old property and have sort of that ancient kind of old energy, uh, there. If it's good energy, hopefully it'll be all good energy. Um, and so, um, where was I going with that? And so it has really inspired me to, to do that, to move forward, to know for certain, you know, like I said, for many years, it was a dream. And now I know it's a goal. It has moved into goal and, 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 and it's becoming a reality. Yeah. Uh, and I'm working on making it a reality. What is my favorite podcast? That's easy. My favorite podcast episode so far uh, is the caves. Uh, the caves is my favorite, favorite uh, and again, I listen to that podcast because I'm working on a book on caves um, and the idea of the descent um, and how descending into darkness allows you to find yourself and then the ascent back up to light. And so that's my favorite. Um, that's my favorite episode so far. Um, although I like them all, obviously. Um, but uh, I would say that that's my favorite, my favorite one uh, because caves are my favorite at the moment. And last but not least, um, I think what I want to know the most is how has studying mythology influenced your development as a person and a woman? And you could see my reply here if you're watching it on YouTube where I'm like, ooh, that's a good one. That's a good question. Um, so I think that's a perfect question to close this finale with. How has studying mythology influenced your development as a person and a woman? And I would like to ask that of you as well. You know, how has uh, listening to the this podcast, but also um, looking up mythology after being inspired by gods and goddesses of old, how has that changed you or helped you develop as a person and a woman? For me, well, for me, it has made me a living. So that's first, I guess, although that's not technically first, but that's sort of the most basic so it has allowed me to pay my bills while researching and teaching this subject, which I'm very passionate about. Um, in doing that, it has become central to my life. You know, we tend to make our jobs kind of central to our lives, uh, which is not a great thing. But in my case, it has allowed me to be constantly in the juice, you know, of, of mythology, or like I say to my students in the soup, we're all in the soup of mythology together. So it has allowed me to stay in this field soup um, all the time. And so every year, every term, it never fails that whatever I'm teaching, even if I'm teaching uh, conflict in culture, or I'm teaching just world religions, so not so much mythology, or I'm teaching, uh, even I teach some writing courses um, that are sort of creative writing courses. Um, and we do poetry, or we do a piece of creative writing, even then she comes up, or the mythology comes up, or the goddess comes up. And so I am constantly within this field. And so it has helped me learn that mythology is actually a living a living thing mythology is not something that just people did in the old days 
mythology is something we live with every single day. Everything we do, everything we think about, everything we believe can be traced back to a myth. Everything, everything. Um, I challenge you to give me things in the comments and I will trace it back to a myth. You know, everything we think about good or bad, everything we think about men or women, everything we think about childhood, everything we think about gods, everything we think about, you know, tradition, ritual, superstition, everything we practice, every single thing we do is mythology. Um, we don't know it's mythology uh, and we don't think of it like that on the day, but because I'm forced to do it and to use it as examples over and over and over and to use examples from my own life over and over, I realize how much we are living mythology. And this is why it's so important that we know the primary mythology, because sometimes I think we're living patriarchal, Christian, Western mythology. So that is myths that have been edited, watered down, singled or simplified, right? Down to basics. And so we go, oh yeah, well, we know the story. You know, I, th I know the story, like Medusa. I know the story of Medusa or I know the story of Persephone. She gets taken by Hades, whatever. So what I've realized is that it's important that we go back to source or to primary source um, and that we read or at least have someone in the case that's my that's my service to the world and to you is have someone go back and do that and then present it and share it so that we understand that the stories are much more complex and had much more deeper meaning than what we've been led to believe. And that's why it continually connects to us. And that leads me to how it helps me develop as a woman, because as a woman, it is mythology that explains the way I feel about certain things today, the way that women react in certain ways, the way that women think in certain ways, the way that women feel connected, the way that women have intuition, the way that women are creative, all everything about womanhood and manhood, although that's for men to decide, but everything about womanhood for me can be traced to the goddess and can be traced to goddess worship pre-patriarchy. And that has empowered me because I now understand why I am who I am, why I have these feelings, why I have these intuitions, why I have these spiritual connections that the church was not enough, did not explain enough for me, didn't, was, not, was not enough, was not enough for me. Um, it, was, it was great. You know, I was not harmed by the church in any way other than some guilting and things like that. But aren't we all? Uh, but uh, it just was not, it just was not home to me. You know what I mean? It was not, it was not it. It was not enough. It was not enough. It felt like someone else's stories. The divine that I felt through Mary was though. And so that connection to the fe feminine divinity is something that has been with me since, you know, birth, let's say. And so when I began researching the goddess from a spiritually perspective, not just an intellectual perspective, I found that feeling again that I had for Mary as a child, that coming home feeling that I know this, I've been here before, I've done this, this is very familiar to me. And so then that has allowed me to 
have more confidence in myself, have more confidence in the divine, trust the universe, trust the goddess, but really trust myself, trust my intuition um, more and more. And so it has been irreplaceable. And I hope to make it irreplaceable for all of you. I hope that you find something in these episodes that is not just historical data, that that it sort of connects, it, it feels familiar to you. I hope that you hear something or see something, an artifact or something, and you go, I know this. This is familiar to me. This explains something to me. Um, so I really hope that that's something you're getting out of it. And if you're just enjoying it for the history, of course, <laughs> there's no nothing wrong with that but my goal in giving you the history is giving you evidence because I am a historian uh, but the other aspects the interpretation aspect the sharing aspect, the sharing my life and my life story with you is in hoping that you can see how that connects for me and in hoping that that connects for you in some way it doesn't, it doesn't have to be the same way but in some way um and so I really hope to do that. I hope I've done some of that in season one. I was learning. It's my first time doing a podcast. Um, and uh, I may have been a bit overambitious in something. So I've learned that if a topic, like I would like to work, I would like to do some work on bees, for example. And bees are such, such a long and complicated mythology, history, science, that I really have to split, split that over three episodes. Um, and so I'm I'm sort of learning, you know, um, how to break down certain aspects. Um, and so I'm not constantly bombarding you with just historical information, um, but also a bit of interpretation. Um, and so I hope that in the future season and next season, um, again, you will listen or enjoy the episodes, but also find something interesting for you, um, something that connects to you, um, or something that you feel like this is something I would like to pursue further, or I'm, I feel like this is familiar to me. I know exactly what she's talking about. Um, and so I think if I've done that, then I've really done my service, which I feel is the service to the goddess, which is, um, to share this information. So my skill, my talent is research and my talent is I enjoy talking to people. And so putting those two things together has gotten me here. And uh, and so I hope that, um, that that is the result of, of my work. You know? um, and I hope that you enjoy coming on travels with me. I hope that some of you out there will join me for some of the travels or um, uh, watch the films of the travels when I put them up. And if you cannot travel, I want to bring that to, to you. Um, and I hope that one day, very soon, very, very soon, uh, once we are building or we have built the Artemis Center, you will join me there for a live um, lecture or discussion on the goddess and, and on Artemis. So with that being said, uh, this is the end of season one. We've come to the end of this finale podcast. Thank you so, so, so much for listening to me. Um, thank you so much for following and subscribing to me. 
Thank you so much for DMing me your questions or comments and on YouTube or on social media. I cannot tell you how much that keeps me focused, you know? Um, your engagement keeps me passionate. Uh, I have sort of a natural born passion, but your engagement has made it so wonderful uh, and has made it a pleasure to build towards this goal and to, to move forward and to have faith that it's not just me, you know, that other people are, are also interested in that, um, that there is a need out there um, for the goddess now more than ever and for the divine feminine, for everyone now more than ever. So thank you so much for listening. Uh, the new season two will start, I don't know, in a couple of months, perhaps in the new year. Um, I will be doing some short Artemis talks, short, about six to 10 minutes that I will post on YouTube and on other social media, uh, just so that we keep in touch before season two begins, um, where I'm going to talk about just different Artemis things or goddess things, just for short. Like I said, maybe pick a nymph here and there and do things. So just to kind of keep us um, together. Um, but I do, so I'm traveling now for a bit again. Um, and then November is going to be lots of marking for the university. And I, I am working on a course that I would like, an online course that I would like to post on goddesses that I would like to share with you guys that takes a lot of work because um, I have to do some lectures and discussions and some quizzes. Anyways, uh, so if you want to learn about the goddess or goddesses, keep uh, an eye out for that as I'm going to to make that course available, hopefully in November. Um, and I'm working on a couple of other things, creative things. And then when I'm in Crete, I'm going to try and finish the book. I have, like I said, two books half finished, so I need to really finish one at least. Um, so there's a lot of things that I have in the works. I am a little bit of an uh, of an overambitious Capricorn. Uh, but then we will come back um, to season two. I have a list for season two. I'll post it on social media so we can all kind of take votes of what you want me to start with first, uh, what you think is most interesting, those kinds of things. So we'll I'll start probably that hype for season two. Um, in January, we'll come back to the episodes, uh, another 20 episodes for season two. So that's sort of my future plan goal. Um, again, you know, stay tuned either here or on social media, because I will post if I do find a piece of property, or uh, obviously, I'll post my travels and the different museums and temples I'm going to, because um, I love to share that with everyone. I solo travel. So you guys are literally my all the people that I talk to when I'm talking to my camera because uh, I'm going everywhere by myself. And so um, it gives me the sense that someone out there is listening to me. Um, and so I will be sharing that on here uh, with you all or on social media. And so and so I look forward to, to the next few months of some uh, additional creative work and then returning to season two. So thank you so much for, um, for listening. If you know anyone that would enjoy this podcast or would enjoy any of the episodes, please feel free to share them uh, with them. Um, if you're running a class on anything, um, I know there was someone who was running a, a class or a lecture on Persephone and I had said, you know, 
please feel free to share with your students uh, the Persephone podcast or any other episodes that you think might be relevant. Um, I would love to also hear from anyone, um, any of their feedback as well. So thank you so much for joining me. I hope you have the best weekend. Uh, if you're Canadian, I hope you have a great Thanksgiving weekend. Um, and I will see you all next season. Bye all. Have a great, great day.